collapsed over the last several weeks, and then we paused last week for Mother's Day. We kind of bring everybody uh, up to speed. The first week we talked about the book of Acts, that, this is, that everything was about Jesus. And we said uh, that we believe that, that the book of Acts is kind of our, our blueprint for how we're to operate not only as a church, but as, as followers of Jesus. And so in the book of Acts... Beginning in verse, or beginning in week one, we talked about that everything was about Jesus. He had left, and he had commissioned the disciples to go everywhere and tell people about him. That he had equipped them with power through the Holy Spirit, and then we began seeing the apostles step out and ministering uh, with great boldness. The second week, we talked about the spirit-empowered Christian community. We talked about the church in the Book of Acts that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. We talked about. The idea of cornonia fellowship, it was this partnership where they were committed to one another and to breaking of bread and prayer. We said that the three kind of characteristics that marked the overall church uh, was the, the reverential awe, that there was this selflessness, and that they were celebrating what God was doing. And we said that God never calls you and I to build anything. He doesn't call people to build churches. He calls us to be many things. And that as we be and are the church, that the Bible says that God builds his church. Week number three, we talked about the Holy Spirit, that it's not an it, but he's a person. And that you can't overestimate his importance in the life of a believer. We said that five of the specific uh, functions of the Holy Spirit is that he restores you and I to God. That he convicts us of sin, that he comforts us during different difficult times, he empowers and he guides us. And so we're going to pick up with the fourth kind of week, and we're going to talk about the book of Acts. And, you know, one of the things that's funny is I hear every once in a while pastors or friends of mine in the ministry say, you know, we just need to get back to the book of Acts. And while I agree with that, the heart is usually we want to see new converts. We want to see people coming through Christ. But the reality is when you get back to the book of Acts, you're going to see a couple things. The church suffering, the church being scattered, people being thrown in prison for the sake of the gospel. And so there are wonderful things associated with the book of Acts, but there are challenges as well, and you can't choose one over the other. Leonard Ravenhill, the great revivalist, I said a couple weeks ago, said that the modern church is married to things like prosperity, personality, and popularity. And yet when we look at the book of Acts, they're married to things like poverty, prisons, and persecution. And so you can't have one without the other. And thank God for the freedom that we have in our nation. But we talked in week four about enduring through difficulty. That we all face tough times in our lives. But as Peter was in prison and the early church stretched out their prayers to God. That he cared for his, his people. Now all of us in, in our lives we have different landmarks that we look forward to. Maybe they're rites of passages or landmarks. It begins as a child when you kind of read your first child's book or you ride a bike for the first time. If you were to drive by our house this week and you were to hear a whole bunch of people cheering and shouting and screaming in our house, we're not fighting, we didn't win the lottery, but it's Amos that's walking around with his little kid's potty saying, look, I went on the potty! And, you know, we're cheering because that's very significant to And it's significant to us because diapers for parents is like liquid gold, you know, and it's like as quick as we can get this potty train, you know, get potty train, you know, it frees up finances. But but you move to the area of, of teenagers and, and it's the first date or the prom that someone went to recently or you get your driver's license. It's a significant moment as a young adult signs their first lease or a or a mortgage contract. It's 
the adult that gets the first time uh, full-time position and years go by and it's the 25th or the 50th wedding anniversary we celebrate retirement and so forth and these are landmarks and we put pictures in our homes and we keep souvenirs and so forth to remember those things and one of the things that I think we need to rediscover when it comes to the early church are these great significant spiritual moments that people have in their lives and then if we're not careful they can become things that we kind of check off the list of things we need to do and we lose the wonder and the awe and the significance of things like salvation things like being baptized in water things like uh, people like Jureta being equipped in her area of giftedness and being released in, in ministry and these almost become things that are like expected if you're not careful rather than life-changing experiences and the early church understood this, and I want to talk this morning about the subject of water baptism, because it's all through the book of Acts. And I was thinking a couple weeks ago, I can't tell you the last time I sat and heard a pastor speak an entire message on the idea and the subject of water baptism. I don't know if it's because um, we just kind of assume everybody knows what we're talking about. Or maybe there's the fear of, you know, if a pastor talks about water baptism, he's only trying to get people to sign up, kind of like money, you know? Talk about money, it's all about getting money, talk about baptism, all of it. So I, I, but it doesn't mean that we don't talk about it. And so this is such a significant subject in, in the book of Acts that we've got to address it. And I want to ask this question, and I want everybody to answer it at the same time when I say, ready, set, go. No worries about getting it wrong. Many probably will. Uh, but when I say go, I want you to answer with a number. And so here's the question. How many baptisms are you and I supposed to experience in our lives as Christians? Ready, set, go. If I were to have to answer this question for many years, I probably would have got the answer wrong. I want to share with you why I believe the correct answer is three. The first baptism that you and I experience as a believer is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You know this, but you know it is a different name. It's called salvation. In 1 Corinthians 12, 13, it says, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free. This verse in the Bible says that one of the functions of the Holy Spirit is that when you and I give our lives to Christ, that he baptizes you and I into the family of God. He baptizes you into Jesus, that, that you're all his, and, and he has total and complete control over your life. But you're baptized into the body of Christ. The second baptism is in Matthew chapter 28. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So the second baptism is the baptism in water. And I would say that the third baptism is when Matthew chapter 3.11, where John the Baptist says, uh, referring to Jesus, he says, I will baptize you for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So it's the baptism in the Holy Spirit. You're baptized of the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ, you are water baptized, and you're baptized into uh, in the Holy Spirit. 
And so we're going to talk about this second baptism this morning. When we gathered together in March, we talked about one of the two ordinances of the church. We talked about communion. But this morning we're going to talk about the subject of baptism. And I'll just give you my goals for this morning, okay? There are three of them. Number one is to establish kind of a framework for what I believe the Bible says related to the subject of water baptism. Number two is to address some specific questions and misconceptions that people have brought up over the years. And then number three is to challenge you to pray whether or not this is the next step that you're supposed to take in your relationship with Jesus. That that's not my job to do. My job is to speak from God's word and the Holy Spirit is the one that points you and I to Jesus and helps us make decisions uh, in our lives. And water baptism, you know, to so many churches can become like a tradition. It's just this thing we do once a year, we do it quarterly. And I would say that water baptism, there should be nothing that gets you and I more excited than seeing people come to Jesus and seeing people that are already followers of Jesus publicly declaring their faith by taking the step of being water baptized, where you bury the old life and you you're raised to new life in Christ. It's a very significant event, and you'll see it, the significance in the early church as we solidify our allegiance, not to America, but we solidify our allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. And water baptism is the public declaration that you and I do as we proclaim that Jesus is Lord. He is king over our lives. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to the book of Acts, chapter 8. Look at how it happens for this man. The context is an angel of the Lord, which is synonymous with the Holy Spirit, in the book of Acts, tells Philip to go south to the road between Jerusalem and Gaza. There, Philip encounters a eunuch who's an important official, we'll talk about that in a bit, of Queen of Ethiopia. So you come from Jerusalem to worship at the temple, and this man's traveling in his chariot with probably an entourage of people. And the Bible says that he's reading from the book of Isaiah, this long scroll. Most scholars believe that from what we found with the Dead, scroll, Dead Sea Scrolls, that this expensive leather scroll that he's reading is at least 20, if not 30 feet long, that's being read from the book of Isaiah, talking about Jesus, that he was led like a sheep to the slaughter as a lamb before his shears is silent. And he's reading this, but the eunuch doesn't understand. And so Philip comes along, and he's interpreting this text in Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 35. Then Philip began to pray that very passage, began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. Verse 36, as they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, this is interesting, so they're in a desert area. Look, here's some water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? Now, how many of you, your Bibles are missing verse 37? Mine's missing. It just jumps from 36 to 38, and there's a little footnote, and we'll get to that in a bit. So we'll skip over that, and we'll get to verse 38. It says, And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. We're going to get back to this portion of text at the end of today's message. But before we get there, I want to talk about three specific questions that continually surface related to the subject of water baptism. I'm trying to do my best to answer them this morning. And I'm far from a scholar, so I'll just tell you that. First question, is water baptism a requirement for heaven? Maybe you've asked this before. And maybe you've been baptized and you say, I've never asked any of these questions. It's important that you're able 
to kind of say the why behind the what. It's very important in the life of a church that it's more than what we do. It's the thinking. It's the reasoning why we do what we do. Is it required for heaven? Absolutely not. Water baptism is not required for heaven. I want to share with you why and then give you a couple examples. First, you've got to realize that the only requirement for heaven is salvation. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Ephesians 2.8 says, It is for by grace we have been saved, through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no man can boast. The Bible is very clear that you and I are saved through Jesus, by faith, not by works of any kind. There is nothing that you and I can do that will save ourselves, therefore get us into heaven. And I would say, including taking the step of being baptized, it's not required for heaven. And so there are some people that say that it's required for salvation, that it's required for you and I to go to heaven. And I don't believe that's an accurate biblical interpretation. I want to give you two examples. First of all, in Acts chapter 2. It's right after Peter leaves the upper room. He's received the, the power of the Holy Spirit. He's preaching with boldness. 3,000 people respond to the gospel. And, and it says this. Peter said to them, Repent and each of you be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the key word. For. So not for, but F-O-R. For the forgiveness of your sins and you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, there are people that will use this specific verse and say, well, it's required for the forgiveness of sins. So you can't be saved. You can't go to heaven. And I would say that that's a very shallow interpretation because in both the English language and the Greek language, the word for has many different translations. And I want to give you uh, an example of this. I was in uh, last Sunday night, uh, a car accident. And thank God I was uh, safe. Thank God, you know, I was Somebody blew an intersection, ran in, teed my car. But, you know, God watches out for us. He cares for us. And so my car was not totaled, very close, uh, but it's going to be fixed this week. But let's just say, hypothetically, my car's totaled. And I'm driving through Park Forest this week, and I see, you know, a car for sale in someone's driveway for $5,000. And I pull over, I get, you know, out of the rental car, go into the house, and I say, I would like your car. I'd like to possess your car. And in order for me to possess it, I need to give you a check for, F-O-R, $5,000. How many of you would agree that I'm not going to have that car, I'm not going to possess that, unless they get a check for $5,000? Is that correct? So that's one meaning of the word for, but here's, here's another word. Take two aspirins for a headache. How many of you know that that statement doesn't mean take two aspirins in order to get a headache, in order to possess a headache? No, you take them because you already have a headache. This translation in the book of Acts, you can't walk away with the conclusion that, that just because you're baptized, that that's for the forgiveness of sin. I believe it means you already possess salvation. You're already a person that can go to heaven and it's not required. The second example is in Acts chapter 10, verse 44. Peter's preaching, the gospel's being presented, and then they're baptized after salvation in Acts 10, 44. Peter is still speaking these words. The Holy Spirit, the Bible says, came on all who heard. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished at the gifts of the Holy Spirit that were poured out on the Gentiles. They're speaking in tongues. 
and they're praising God. Then Peter said, can any one of these people, not, what can keep any one of these people from being baptized with water? They've received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. These individuals in Acts chapter 10 are clearly saved. They're speaking in tongues. They're praising God. And we know from the book of 1 Corinthians that, that those are things that are reserved for people that are Christians. They're saved. You, can, you don't speak in tongues if, if you're not a follower of Jesus. You can't praise the one true God. It would be foreign for someone that doesn't have relationship. And we see that both of those things are happening prior to them being water baptized. I would say to a pastor, for a leader to say that you must be water baptized to be part of a church, you must be water baptized to be saved, you must be water baptized to go to heaven, you would have a very difficult time preaching that sermon to the man that was on the side of Jesus on a cross. When Jesus looked him in the eyes and said, you know what, today you will see me in paradise because the last time I checked, we're not baptizing people on crosses. It's not required for salvation. The second question is I was sprinkled as a child. Doesn't that count? And I wish I could say yes, because don't we all want the easy route? But it's not. It doesn't count. There are three specific words in the original language. Ritenzo, which means sprinkled. Chio, which is not a pet. Okay, that's chia. Chio means to pour. And that the word is baptismo. And when Jesus tells the disciples, go out. He says to baptismal people, basically meaning dip or to immerse these people in water. If he wanted us to sprinkle, he would have said pretenza. If he wanted us to chio, he would have said don't do the pet, it's, it's poor. But he says no, you're to baptize, you're to dip or immerse people. The second thought is that related to baptism is that the Apostle Paul says multiple times that we identify in his burial and his resurrection. And you can't go to a funeral and see somebody sprinkle a little dirt on a coffin. No, they are fully immersed. They are totally covered in dirt. And you can't identify, I believe, with the Lord's death until you're fully immersed. Most importantly, to those that have been sprinkled as a child, maybe as an infant, I'm not here to question your parents' intentions because we thank God for the faith of our parents and the vast majority of them have great godly intentions. But every baptism you see in the New Testament is an individual that has made a commitment for themselves to declare Jesus as Lord of their life. They didn't repeat a prayer grandma said. They didn't walk down with their brothers and sisters, kind of do it all as a family thing. No, they made it a decision on their own and then they made the next step to be publicly uh, baptized in water. But the question arises, what age is it appropriate? It's a great question, and theologically, you can't really establish an age. I would say that children need to understand two specific things. Number one is that they must have made a decision on their own. They recognize that sin is, is who we were. They realize that Jesus is the answer for sin in our lives, and they've made that decision to publicly declare Jesus as Lord over their lives, they really believe that Jesus took upon himself the sin of you and I and those that are around the world today and that through him we can have salvation. I think they have to clearly understand that and young children can. I think part of our role as a parent is we want to encourage 
them taking steps in faith, not to squinch or devalue significant steps in their lives. That would be a hard thing for a kid to wrestle with. But I think the second thing they just simply need to understand is the symbolism of the death, the burial, and the resurrection. I would say if they understand those two things, we should be more than willing and wanting and desiring to celebrate them in water baptism. But maybe you grew up in a church where water baptism was like this, you know, you had to reach this kind of level of spiritual maturity and it became this real intimidating thing. And you had to be interviewed, you had to write all these answers to questions and all of those things. And I would say to you that that would have been a hard sell to Peter in Acts, where there were 3,000 people that gave their lives to Christ. Could you imagine Peter saying, everybody line up. You got to get through Pastor Peter's questions before you're water baptized. I mean, that just would have really bottlenecked the whole process. I think if you understand just those two simple things, then you and I should be more than willing and desiring to be water baptized. They need to understand the symbolism. And for you parents, if you want to reference that in Scripture, you can just write down in your notes Romans 6, 3 through 7. Question number three is what if I've been serving Jesus for many years? He knows my heart. So what's the point? And I would say to you that I believe that he does know your heart. And that's a good thing for you to realize. But I would also disagree with the decision because I don't believe that it's an option in Scripture. I believe Jesus commands it. He requires it. He expects you and I to take this next step in being publicly baptized as we stand for him, that it's not done in response to a parent, it's not done in response to a church or a pastor, but the primary desire, the primary motivation for any decision, this is important, this is kind of the, one of the overarching themes, that the primary motivation for any decision you and I make in our lives should be obedience to Christ. It's obedience to Christ that should motivate us, and I agree with you know, that, that he knows your heart, but... You know, Bill Johnson said once, he said that, that simple obedience attracts the favor of God on our lives. Simple obedience to that which he has asked us. And I would say that if you take this, he knows my heart, same philosophy. Like treat salvation, treat heaven. Like, you know, as long as I get there, that's good. You know, it's good enough to just kind of sneak in. It'll all work out. I would say if you take that kind of bare minimum philosophy and you apply that to things like sharing your faith. You apply that to things like baptism or tithing or taking care of the poor widows and orphans. I would say, first of all, do you really understand God's word? But then most importantly, why on earth would you not want the favor of God, the blessing of God to be with you as you take small, simple steps of obedience? Turn in the Bible to Matthew chapter 13, because this is huge. This is very significant. Look at the pleasure. You can sense almost the smile of God, the stamp of approval. As Jesus is being baptized in Matthew chapter 3, Jesus comes from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized. He asked John to baptize him. John's basically like, really? You should be baptizing me. But Jesus says, you know, that it's important to fulfill righteousness. So John can sense and he baptizes Jesus. And look at how the Bible describes it. It says, as soon as he comes up out of the water in verse 13 of chapter 3 of Matthew. At that moment, the heaven was opened. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lightning on him. 
And a voice from heaven says, This is my son with whom I am well pleased. You can just sense the smile, sense the stamp of approval, sense like the validation. Not that Jesus is fully, he's fully man, he's fully God, but you just sense, I would say to you, the issue with this question is he knows your heart, but what about his heart? Because when Jesus models this for us, God's like smiling. This is a, a huge deal. The heavens open. The, the Spirit of God descends on him. Other translation says that it remains on him. It's a big deal to the heart of God when you and I take simple steps of obedience to that which he's called us. And we publicly identify with his death, his burial, and resurrection. Let's get back to Acts chapter 8. I want to share with you just a couple quick truths about this unit. As not only he hears the gospel, responds to the gospel, but he's water baptized. The first is that water baptism is intended to come naturally after salvation. There's not a huge disconnect here in the book of Acts between people being saved and them being baptized. Many times it was just natural. It happened immediately. In verse 36, he, the eunuch says, look, here's water. What can stand in the way of me being baptized? He's the one that naturally thought, he naturally came to the conclusion, why should I not be water baptized? And as, as he's, this is being asked, and you know, he's hearing and he's responding to the gospel, which is why Jesus links the two things in the Great Commission together. He says, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that the natural progression for people is when they give their lives to Christ that they should desire to be baptized and make the commitment to publicly declare that it's not a necessity, but hopefully out of the passion and the motivation of kind of us going, going all in that we desire to make him known publicly in our lives. But the challenge then is for people that have been saved for many years and you You've never taken that step. And I would say that if that's you, I would say take a period of time and just say, Lord, is this what I'm supposed to do? Is this what I'm supposed to do? Holy Spirit, would you, would you speak to me, not only through God's word, but you, would you confirm the decision that I'm supposed to make? Should I put it off for another 10 years? Should I put it off for 20 years, even since it's not required for heaven? Or is this something that, God, you want me to do out of my relationship with you, I would say to you, if you're a newer believer, you're kind of new to your relationship with God, I feel like this is kind of one of the things that God built in His Word for us to publicly stand for Him, uh, not only in the church, because there's nothing in Acts that talks about, you know, baptizing, you've got to baptize people in church. Uh, it's just not there. If you were to talk to the apostles about that, that would be a foreign concept to them. They just baptized people wherever there was water. But if you're new to your faith, I would say that one of the things that accelerates you taking a stand for him is doing it in a church or doing it publicly. Because you can't do that at, at a church, I would say that you'd have a really difficult time standing for him at work. I have a friend, uh, this is a youth pastor that years ago had a team that was in his youth ministry that went into the army. And on the base, people were committing their lives to Christ one after another. And there was such this desire an interest for them to be water baptized. And he showed me these pictures where they literally, in the midst of these tent communities, would dig out 
areas of sand on the army bases and they would line them with blankets. They would fill them with water and they were baptizing these soldiers. Wow. And it just reminds me of the book of Acts. This eunuch's like, I've responded to the gospel the first time he sees water. What would possibly stand in the way from me being baptized, he said. But then the second thing that stands out to me is Philip's response. Because baptism really is an issue of, of the heart. And so verse 37, and many of our translations is blank. And so there's a, a little footnote at the, at the bottom of my Bible and probably many of yours that says some manuscripts include what Philip said. And this is what it says. If you believe with your whole heart or all of your heart, you may be baptized. The eunuch answered, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And so really, it, it, it's an issue of, of the heart. Philip's not concerned about, let's get him back to the apostles. Let's, you know, build a church building and we'll, we'll make this kind of thing a tradition. We'll make this thing official. And he's like, no, the motivation of your heart is pure. What would possibly keep you from being baptized? And here's the wonderful thing about this. That when Philip makes this an issue of the heart, this is a huge theme in the book of Acts that you've got to get. That the gospel is not about who you were, but it's about whose you are as a new creation in Christ. That it's not about rich or poor or black, white, every other color in between. It's not an issue of famous or insignificant. This man is powerful. This man's the chief treasurer of a kingdom that's wealthy from iron smelting and gold mining and trading. Their, their area was like a conduit for that entire continent. He was an esteemed person. He was a recognized person. He's in a chariot with an entourage. They're traveling around. And Luke, who's the author of Acts, one of the big themes that he's trying to get across for the gospel is he's trying to remove the geographical barriers, things like age or religious traditions or whether or not you're old or new or your race or your ethnic origin or physical condition. He says that the gospel transcends all of those things and this eunuch is now publicly being baptized because it's all about our heart. It has everything to do with our heart when we hear and we apply the gospel to our lives. Which is why in the last verse of the book of Acts it says boldly and without hindrance. He preached the kingdom of God. Not a church kingdom. Not God bless America. No he preached God's kingdom. You and I. We're part of a kingdom that far surpasses any kingdom in this world. And he preached about the kingdom of God. He taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. It's all about the heart. Not a checklist. Not join Zach's church. Not join Access Church because I'm saved and now I gotta be <coughs> baptized and now I gotta help with kids. No, it's, it's simple obedience to that which is in our heart. And then number three, that water baptism is an opportunity to take a stand. Verse 38, then he gave orders to stop the chariot. So now everything kind of comes to a pause. And then both Philip and the eunuch went down to the water and Philip baptized him. Right there, out in the open, people watching. We don't know specifically how many servants or bodyguards or whoever's in this chariot. That doesn't necessarily matter. But the, the point, the principle is he was willing to publicly declare before men that I'm a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. He took a stand. 
water baptism is an opportunity for you to publicly take a stand. And I just want to be honest and shoot straight with you for a minute because this is one of the things that we need to rediscover in American Christianity today. We want to fit in. We want to blend in. We want to go with the flow of many people. We want to live American Christianity. We want to live, you know, Republican Christianity, whatever that means. We, we just want to we just want to go with the flow. And at the end of the day, God calls you. He calls me to stand. And we are facing not just, I believe, the the early stages of some, some things that I believe are going to unravel in our nation. But let me tell you the, the difference kind of between nominal Christianity. I mean, in a couple of years, you're going to either be taking a stand or you're not following Jesus. The, the, this kind of lukewarm Christianity is not going to exist. We can have big churches. We can have a lot of people in churches, but Laodicea had thousands of people, and Jesus said, I'll spew that church on its back. New Testament, Acts Christianity, is publicly standing for Christ. If you don't stand for something, you'll fall for just about anything you see, read, hear, or talk. You've got to learn to stand. Your spouse may not stand next to you, your family may not be standing by you, but at the end of the day, God calls you to stand even when no one else is standing. Water baptism is one of those steps among many. Here he is out in the open. People observing, people watching, that's irrelevant, irrelevant to this man as he's willing to stand for Christ. He's publicly saying, I'm a follower of Jesus. And at the end of the day, as you read through the book of Acts, that's what it's going to take. As the worship team comes back and we prepare to close the meeting. Challenging you over the next couple weeks to continue reading through the book of Acts. What you're going to read about is men, women, and people that at the end of the day are sin. They may be locked in prison. They may be rejected by society. That doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is God called me. God, you've equipped me. You've given me an assignment. And at the end of the day, I'll do what you've called me to do. I'll walk in simple obedience. And I will stand for you. Would you please ask for me? Lord, on our own strength. <laughs> it's not easy, Sam. But at the end of the day, Jesus, we don't stand alone. Your Holy Spirit is with us. That He's the one that comes alongside us. He equips us and empowers us through the restored relationship that we have to God and His the Holy Spirit's working in our lives. He enables you and I to do things that we cannot do in our own strength. And so, Lord, we come to you today in our confession. Holy Spirit, we need you more and more and more than ever before. In the nation where things are, just seem like they're going down the tubes, at the end of the day, Jesus, our hope isn't in America. Our hope is not a kingdom. 
of this earth. Our hope is not in a political leader or structure. Jesus, our hope is in you. And Jesus, you stood alone. Even your closest followers rejected you at times, running, hiding. And yet, Jesus, you stood for me. You stood on my behalf. You stood on behalf of every person that's here this morning. Maybe you're here today, and this idea, this concept of water baptism is new to you because you, you haven't given your life to Christ. You never reached the point where you said that Jesus is Lord, He's Master, He's in control of your life. When I hear the word Master, I think of many things. So I honestly prefer to see Him as a King because at the end of the day, Bible says that you and I are sons and daughters of Him through relationship. And that God does want to bless you. He does want to keep you. He does want to do amazing things in and in through your life. First, it involves you surrendering your life. And maybe you're here today.